0: Mastering
1: Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Again, I'm Tom Hammond, your uh, host and co-founder of UserWise. Um, today, I am really excited to uh, have Francesco, Francesco Fontana on. Um, <laughs> apparently, I can't speak anymore, um, <laughs> but um yeah you're you're in Helsinki now right
0: yeah I am it's, uh, it's cloudy and uh the winter is coming
1: Yeah, working at at Savage Games, which I think everyone in the the industry is, you know, actively watching and excited to see what kind of shooter you guys uh, come up and put together. But, uh, you know, before we uh, delve into things today, I know, you know, we wanted to spend some time talking about testing retention, which as we are on the Mastering Retention podcast, gets me super excited. Um, You know, I always like to ask, you know, what's your story? Like, how did you end up in games and how did you end up, you know, where you are today?
0: Well, like, uh, so um, (laughs) this goes way back. Uh, I think the last years of my high school have been like the most uh, um, interesting for like knowing what I wanted to do next. I always wanted to be a doctor, like uh, in medicine. And, Dude, then me up, and me I, too me too here I am. but then the thing is that like I thought that was a great option I, I loved uh, the problems of like uh, problem solving in medicine and uh, but then I, I realized that I wanted to do that only because it seemed a valuable and safe career. Then <laughs> thanks to my my older brother that showed me showed me that uh, also career in games was possible and since he knew <laughs> my passion uh, I, I decided to shift my focus. So I started design. Uh, right after high school and uh, i started working in games right away really like the first year Uh, i I collaborated with a indie studio called we are musely they are still active and and, uh, expanding and they are doing mainly narrative games escape rooms all kinds of cool stuff really like uh really nice stuff i I really miss working with them (laughs) And um, and in the meantime, I became also a journalist in the video game, like video game journalist. So I could, I could talk to all the developers and getting my foot in the, in the door for all kinds of uh, stuff. And after my studies, I started working at Wargaming Helsinki for about a year. Then the studio closed and I went to Rodeo, um, where I continued. I worked on uh, Phoenix Rangers, which was a soft launch game, a puzzle RPG. And then I led a prototype team for some time before joining Savage, where I am senior game designer, uh, mainly working with uh, metagame systems, economies, and um, everything I can do to help really, it's a startup.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you guys are obviously working on a new game. I'm going to ask you some game economy questions because I I love game economy design. Um, You know, for someone that maybe doesn't have as much experience kind of designing those economies, you know, thinking about a new game, like, How should I be like thinking or planning about, you know, the game's economy when it's maybe going through rapid prototype changes and things like that? You know, how does the economy fit into that, you know, phase of game creation?
0: That's a great question, actually. It's one I had to face very recently as well, since um, um, I've never been part before uh, before this time uh, of a a big team that was starting like uh, a, a new game. So I had to do my usual job, but from the very, very beginning, rather than getting onboarded on something that was already done. So I could build all the foundations and, uh, and that's definitely one of the main problems that I faced. And my answer to that is that you should make the game playable, always, at all stages, even accommodating the, the needs. For example, if there's only one level where you shoot free guys, that, that those three those guys need to like, feel good uh to 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 kill and uh, so the time to kill needs to be something and uh the weapon needs to do some sort of damage but don't stress too much about it because everybody knows that the game is not balanced completely and the bigger plan is what you need to work on in parallel behind the scenes so for example as we were testing a level at savage i was okay building some sort of draft game balancing, and then in the meantime, preparing tools and simulation tools to allow for uh, uh, simulating a thousand uh, playthroughs of, of that level to see where the, the player might have died, what was the chance and uh, what I could do about it. But really in, uh, in a Friday's play test, you don't really see that small chance or uh, or you don't need that level granularity to make the level playable. So my, so to sum it up is just try to focus on what works uh, right now, even though it's not perfect and make the game playable because that enables everybody to work on it. And then in the meantime, do your mastermind plan behind the scenes.
1: I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I've heard um, always play the build, you know, especially when you're designing economies, because even though you've planned it out that getting that, you know, finding that one diamond is going to be perfect or something, you actually play the build. And it's just like completely underwhelming. And you're like, oh, I got to go back to the drawing board on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what I'm actually yeah, giving think, players.
0: And it's fairly easy to to just make something that works for a prototype because you don't have weeks or days <laughs> or or months of play. You just have like 30 minutes. So you can, you can balance an economy in 30
1: minutes,
0: (laughs) even though it's not gonna, it's not gonna stay like fresh or who cares? It's 30 minutes.
1: (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot. Well, you know, thinking uh, again, a little bit more on like this uh, early stage prototype, like I've been working with a lot of uh, game companies later that are um, either in soft launch or just about to soft launch. And, um, you know, really the the purpose of a soft launch is to as quickly as possible figure out, like, is this something that, you know, players are going to enjoy and I can get that. CAC below my LTV so that I can actually scale this thing up and, you know, drive it home um, before I spend, you know, a ton of time, you know, integrating my live ops tools and all those other pieces to be get ready for a global launch. I want to very quickly figure out, you know, like, do I have the retention to be able to support this player base? Like, is it going to be fun? Um, so, you know, th- this kind of idea of retention testing or retention optimization comes in. Um, so, you know, when I say that, like, what does that actually mean to you?
0: Well, I think like, that's kind of the <laughs> $1 million question in a way, uh, like how, how to, how to approach that problem. But I think like the, the, the simpler the game, the easier you can test your, uh, sorry, the earlier you can test your attention and the more complex it is, the later, and it doesn't mean that. If you get bad retention numbers after your uh, earlier testing, doesn't mean that the game is uh, it's not working. It just means maybe it's not complete. So understanding when the game has enough systems or enough content or enough gameplay elements to to be tested, it's probably the ultimate question like when and that is really complex uh when when you are in a pipeline with like a, in a huge company with 20 prototypes in the in the <laughs> next to <laughs> you ready to 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 make it and it's really hard to to present and explain also to like people who need to make the call and it's much easier to identify in a smaller company because the loop are much um, smaller. But anyway, like for example, if you need to test a hyper-casual game, the retention of a hyper-casual game, you can do it after a week. Or after a, a month of development, like depending on your hyper casual, because it's really like you press the button, the character jumps. That's not much to it. There are some very light systems, ads coming in. But the retention really like it's probably reliable after a few, few uh, like after a short de- development time. But if you need to spend uh to sorry to test a Forex game or a looter shooter or an RPG, like imagine testing uh the retention of Pokemon Go when there's no way to catch Pokemon. There's just ways to, I don't know. Or maybe there's a way to catch Pokemons, but there are 10 Pokemons. Or uh, or there's nothing you can do with the Pokemons after you caught them. Like, it's it's much harder, right? So you need to test it uh, further down the line, but you can still do earlier testing to understand if the, the, the small mechanics that you put in are working. And then when the time comes to look at the numbers, then they are at least reliable. You can look at the numbers beforehand, of course, but with a grain of salt, maybe.
1: Is there a good system in place? So I'm, I'm thinking of a, a studio that I've been, you know, working with for a little while. Um, they they have a game. It's, I don't know, maybe like halfway done, but, you know, following good protocol, they soft launched it. Um, and they're seeing maybe like 30% day one retention. Um, top games that are, you know, kind of similar are probably closer to like 50 to 60% done. Um, they're, you know, definitely far from, where they need to be, but they have this huge like feature roadmap, um, but they also only have so much timeline f- from a funding perspective. Um, yeah. You know, are is there any tips that you have to say like, okay, how much time should I invest in this? Because it's very possible that I build out all those features over the next six months and nothing changes. Um, and there, you know, still, and now I've squandered that time that I could have been, you know, building another game that gives me a better, you know, shot on the goal.
0: Well, of course, like you can, uh, you can start testing things as soon as possible. And, uh, there's no really downside in that aside from using resources in terms of time of the people that work with you, uh, and the cost of doing that. Um, but, like you can, you can give like you can start fixing problems that are uh, related to your retention as early as possible, but you need to understand whether those problems come from a lack of features or systems and uh, or from uh, from the fact that the feature is not working or balanced. So to come to your question, then how do you prioritize? Then like, in, I think you you have different approaches. You can try to chase the what standard. But usually, like that's not very efficient for a small company. But it's very efficient for uh, like a colossal, three hundred people company, because they can just pump all the features right in as soon as possible and then fixing problems with them. Or um, so you can um, so as I said, you can you can either uh, slam all the features in as soon as possible and see what happens, or try to understand what feature has the most impact. And in my experience, uh, like especially at Raw View, I noticed something that was a bit unusual. Uh, to to at least what I thought at the time, that we we added a few features that were supposed to improve um, day seven retention, which was mm-hmm. what we wanted to improve because we we reached more or less the target for day one. But yeah. what happened is that the day one and day two improved instead. So what happened there? And uh, the um, kind of the. <laughs> um, how do you say? It? Like the the result of that the train of thought was basically that players would see that there's more to the game, so they're like pulled towards day day three, day four, day seven, even though they're not really using or engaging that to, with that feature um, yeah. until that day, but they're still pulled.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: that's what happened uh, in that specific case with the uh, um, yeah with the with Phoenix Rangers.
1: Do you think there's ever a case to use like user research, you know, within this realm, like, you know, in-game surveys during a soft launch or something like that? To, oh, yeah, of course. How would you go about doing that?
0: Well, uh, it's... a uh... It's a big topic, but uh, but definitely you should, you should do user research as soon as, as possible, even before having a, a game idea <laughs> to understand, <laughs> really to understand everything about, okay, well, maybe that's a bit too early, but once you have a rough idea, <laughs> you should understand your audience as,
1: yep.
0: as soon as possible. And through user research, you can do a lot of guessing and then having a clear hypothesis that you can test. So if you don't have the clear hypothesis, because you don't have a clear idea of what you're going to do, then you're never gonna get like reliable results. Um, there are a few ways that you can do it. Like I would, I would rely on a huge set of analytics to improve uh, any anything really, like uh, for mm-hmm. any test. Because the more the more analytic data you have, the more you can you the more the more stuff you can um, deduce. But qualitative tests. Come really in handy to give you the first insights, but then I think you always need to confirm them with quantitative analytics. Data. Yeah, and that's often analytics, but it could be also a survey for a thousand people, as long as it's not a survey for ten people because that's qualitative, not really quantitative. So I don't know. You could do a focus group or uh, some um, some playtest cloud testing where you see the players playing and ask questions to them, and then it gives you a hunch. Or what could be the problem and then you open your huge data set of uh, 100 million queries and you see that oh there is a correlation and then maybe you can do something about it but asking the right question is usually like the bigger bigger part of the problem
1: as a game designer are are you able to like write and do sql queries i know a lot of pms are you know fluent in sql and it's kind of their go-to or do you think game designers should also flow into that box or do you you know typically rely on more on like the bi folks well as
0: as any as any technical skill is useful to have at least to the extent that allows you to talk with the people that know really what they're doing so like i am able to prototype my own games to a certain extent or for example the simulator uh, that i was mentioning earlier like I coded with the help of the lead programmer, so it's it's always useful to have technical skills. I thought I wouldn't say it's required, but it's definitely preferable. For example, like in Rovio, at some point I was uh, on the verge of saying, "Okay, please tell uh, like teach me how to do this so I can I can stop bothering you." That's also <laughs> valuable. <laughs> and uh, our BI engineer was amazing, uh, and I had a great time. And uh, I think what what's really valuable in the collaboration rather than writing the query is the knowledge of statistics and understanding when uh, which tool to use, like whether a t-test or uh, other fancy statistical tools to understand whether something is reliable or not. What's, uh, For example, how many player do you need to make this particular test uh, reliable enough? 10, 100? Like, if, uh, for example, if the button presses, probably you need a way smaller pool than if the shooting uh, is bugged or not. Yeah. You know, so that, that the collaboration is always useful, especially when, when it gets into the most complex stuff. But I, I'd say, like, if you're a game designer and you work a lot with live operation, then you probably should, should learn it at some point. And I'll definitely do it <laughs> as well.
1: Do you have a, uh, a favorite analytics tool? I know a lot of like X-Rovio, x Studio, it seems seem to be Amplitude all, all across the board from what I've seen, but uh, curious if you have a favorite Looker, Tableau, there's lots of them out there.
0: Well, uh, the one that we were using in Rovio, and it's a, it's a custom one that's made in-house, it was really amazing, I think. Especially in the potential that had in uh, comparing data uh, and everything was really clean, and uh, pretty dashboards and you could really easily add dashboards to it. So, well, I don't think I can go too much into the details of that, but I was, uh, I was really, I was really happy with that. And I deeply missed it. Well, not yet because we're not live, but I will deeply miss it. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Cool. Um, thinking a little bit about, um, I guess shooter creation now. Um, So I'm, you know, really fascinated. Like what's it like going from, you know, like Phoenix Rangers was kind of this puzzle type game to a shooter game.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, You know, like, did you learn anything in the puzzle genre that is really translated well to shooters or or vice versa?
0: I'm not sure if about the genre itself, but I think the concepts of uh, economy design for both are, are pretty applicable, like um, they, can, they can be translated easily. Um, for example, like Phoenix Rangers was a turn-based uh, game, right? So what happens when you need to balance real time? My take is that the only thing that changes really is that instead of adding one turn, you have fractions of seconds or one second, and then you measure the balance second to second. In fact, the term DPS is probably not new to you, damage per second. And, and that's how you go about it. You just fragment it as much, like as small as possible, and then you take it from there. So for example, to balance the, a weapon against an enemy, really it's the time to kill. So how many seconds to kill this guy? And then you can calculate mathematically what's the damage per second with the reload speed and um, the fire rate and the damage of the single bullet. And it gets more granular and granular, but really, it doesn't make that much difference from you press a button, you deal some damage. It's just more complicated, but the concept is really translatable. And uh, the game economy is really the same because the matter game could be, it could be like a bunch of systems interacting with each other. You get some currency, you sink it somewhere else, and it doesn't matter if it's about building a, a base or mm-hmm. if it's about modding your weapon. The math is really the same. So as a designer, you're probably flexible enough to apply the concepts to both worlds. There is a lot of learning and uh, that needs to be done uh, to, to, to handle this complexity or to to consider it completely. For example, DPS, uh, if you're talking about a weapon, is only, uh, it's not exactly representative of the damage per second you do on a longer amount of time because you need to factor in the fact that at some point, your guy is going to reload the weapon. So, Effective uh, DPS also uh, factors in the reload of the weapon and same for the enemies. So I think the learning curve is in finding or catching these differences rather than uh, finding new concepts per
1: se. Mm. When you're you know, thinking about that economy design, um, I'm, I'm thinking about back when I had uh, Ethan Levy on the podcast and, and he was telling me a little bit about uh, when he was designing legendary Game of Heroes for Network. Um, and, and he was kind of, uh, lamenting on the fact that, you know, they didn't really take the right amount of time. And he just wished they would have spent, you know, an extra day or two thinking about the game economy, not just like three years out, but five or 10 years out because they had these elder players that stuck around for three years and they'd basically like maxed out everything. They'd gone through all the meta economy designs and things like that. And you know he was going, you know, if we just started on day one, and we'd planned to have these additional systems kind of kick in three years or five years or, or whatever, and um, and then it just adds so much additional lifespan. You know, when is it appropriate to spend time thinking and planning that far out and what those systems might be or you know what they might look like versus you know I, I look at like Hungry Shark World um you know they ran into some game economy issues where then they just released like a new game mode that kind of reinvented the economy world of warcraft kind of does this with every one of their expansions right they just kind of like reset the stuff that matters and it gives them a chance to kind of you know completely break the old economy which we don't care about anymore because everyone's you know moved on to this next area um you know is there a right approach from a you know Long run free to play perspective.
0: Well, I think like in the case of World of Warcraft, like my my intuition is that 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 is done also to push the players to the to the end game as far as soon as possible, so that they can play the latest coolest content. In fact, the curves from classic to retail are completely <laughs> different. <laughs> like the speed to get to level sixteen retail is absurd compared to classic. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's the reason why uh, they want you to play the, whole, the latest only because there's so much. But regarding like uh, easier examples, I think you, you don't have necessarily to plan it out as long as you try to create isolated uh, economies. So there are two ways of, of using resources or well, more or less at least. You can use a resource that is used in many plays or you can create a resource that's used only in one place. If you do that, then you can add as many, parallel, um, as many parallel systems as you want, because they don't interact with each other. Yeah. Because you use you use gold only to buy food and you use blue gold only to buy water. And there's if, as long as there's no transition between these currencies, then these systems are isolated. And in this way, it becomes modular. And you can pop pieces in pop pieces out and uh you can keep adding 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 and and that's one way of doing it without planning uh extensively the problem arises if you use your currencies in many places because for example if you played five years then you have a like way different income of that (laughs) currency that uh, and a way different uh you can hoard the currency or the currency gets inflated and you have all these kind of problems. So my take is that one should probably build systems in a way that are fairly isolated. So that at the moment you want to create an expansion, that, that expansion becomes relevant only for players that are at that point. And then all the previous resources are used or either are not used anymore or they're not relevant. But for a new player, the new player doesn't see the later game resources. They just see the early game resources. So it's fine. I
1: don't know if that answers your question, but it's... Uh... I think so. Is there is there a good... So like, you know, using those kind of one-off currencies for certain things, I can see the value in doing that. But I could also, from a maintenance standpoint, or keeping track of all the things that are going on in the game, if you keep adding all these different currencies and, and things, you know, does that add a lot of complexity and maintenance and, you know, two years in after you keep adding all these things, you know, do you need to recycle some of them? Is there like a reasonable amount that like we should keep this many in the game at once? Um, you know, I I think about like magic, the gathering, I think one of the big revelations they had was let's cycle sets and retire them from, you know, over time. So there's only like four active sets at any given moment um one because it encourages people to buy the the new stuff and it but it also allows us to change the meta and whatnot and then we don't have to worry about balancing and all this stuff against all these old things that you know might still be floating around if that kind of makes sense
0: yeah it does like uh, keeping the meta fresh is always like uh that's a, that's a very different thing because the in, the, in for example in magic the the cards you get your first day of magic are still somewhat relevant the last day of magic it's not it's not like they are less relevant but the currency or the weapon you got in your first day as a shooter player is probably <laughs> completely useless on your 30 30 days the day of of, uh, of playing. So as long as the currency naturally or the the, the content really naturally flows out or becomes irrelevant and relevant, at different points of the player journey, I think you're you're really fine, but also if you think about how events are often handled, so the, there's the event currency that is valid for that event, and then it's retired and it can gets translated into something else, either some other parallel points that you can use for, to do something else, or you can um, translate it into something else, really. But the point is that you can you can put it and retire it uh, for a, for a weekend. And uh, since it's an isolated system, you can do that. Uh, of course, you shouldn't, you should have, I'm not saying you should have an inventory of 50, uh, 50, <laughs> uh, uh currencies, but rather let's say you decided free is a good amount for the player to juggle. Make yep. them relevant and irrelevant at different levels throughout you know, the player journey.
1: I like that. So l- let's talk a little bit about um live ops and currencies and and whatnot. Um do you have any, you know, tips and tricks or uh experience where, you know, hey, we made this live ops event. And in that event, we created, I don't know, experience coins or, or something like that. Um and you know, they're only going to be relevant for the duration of that, you know, event. Um how would you go about making them meaningful so that players actually want to, you know, accumulate those experience coins?
0: So there is definitely a trend of getting this, the, the live ops the events um, as soon as possible in the player journey. So I think there was a tendency some years ago of saying, okay, the events are only for the end game, but I I believe that now, as as soon as you're ready to play, you can participate in events at your own level, and uh, kind of the the event is fragmented in a way that you can compete or or participate in it at any at any point. For example, in in the, in the case of puzzle RPGs, uh, in Phoenix Rangers, there was like the 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 equivalent of the Titan for uh, for uh, Empires and Puzzles, so. A monster that the guild had to fight, and it was for a limited time. That's an event. So in that in that event, uh, low level players and high level players could participate, no matter which point of the journey they were at. They were contributing in different ways, and there were prizes for different kinds of uh, tiers. Of course, the lower level prizes. Um, we we can do it so that we could do it so that they were getting resources more useful for that level of play. So, oh, I didn't get the first prize with all the coolest stuff. I still got useful stuff for my level of play, and then the top uh top dog with the uh, awesome monsters they could get the first prize, which was relevant for the point of the progression they were at. So, again, I think it's uh the underlying topic here is understanding exactly which point of the player journey your player is, okay. and then. Anything can be relevant for them if you design the game in a way that's like, uh, like let's say uh, proper. Because yeah. you, know, you you need this currency. Here's an event where you can get it. You can participate in it. You don't need uh, to be level five million. You just go in and get the stuff you need, and that's really you create the need for for that. And then it doesn't matter if it's from a live ops event or uh, or the, your your standard progression, but maybe like. One one thing we could we could briefly touch upon is how do you create a need. And I think it's super interesting to uh, kind of understand that you need to design a, a balanced uh, progression. By by balanced, I mean that sinks and faucets are more or less on the same level. So you get mm-hmm. as much as you can spend. However, if you manually or by some mathematical tool of your choice offset that at different points of the player journey then you're effectively either giving more that they can spend or less that they can spend. So they're starved or overwhelmed. And if you keep this imbalance in control, it creates really interesting points where at some point, oh, I need, oh, I thought I had all the food in the world, but now I need it. Let me grind these levels so that I can compensate. And uh, I think that's one way of creating the need for your currency, aside from the aesthetics of having the coolest gun or the coolest uh, new skin or uh, gear, which is really powerful as well. Yeah. And both, they, should, they should go hand in hand, most likely.
1: I like that a lot. Um, I just started playing uh Diablo 2 Resurrected with some of my buddies and I uh nice. I grinded a little uh I think it was like Nightmare Countess for a little while and I had all these towel runes and I was like, Yeah, I'm, I'm loaded up. And then, you know, some of my friends came in and I was like giving out tower runes and I go to like make a weapon and I'm like, I'm out of towel runes already. And you know, I had this like plenty full, and-, and now I've got to go back and-, and grind some more countess or whatnot. So um yeah, it- it's a fun time. Um Looping back real quick to that, you know, event design. Um, I've seen games do two different things. So, you know, I think one of the hardest challenges that I see with running a live game is you always have these different cohorts of players at different stages of the game, right? You have your elder players that are at the far end of the content, right? And you always have new players coming in and then you got all the other groups in between. Um, You know, if I want to create an event do you think it is better for me to try to design the overall event to kind of accommodate all those different groups of players? So, you know, I, I designed the top reward to be for those elder players. They'll probably be able to get it. And then I, you know, run the numbers and say, okay, well for the new players, they'll probably be able to get yay far into the event. So I'll put some, something nice there for them to get, even though they, you know, don't get to the high or, I see others that are like, okay, I'm going to create a completely segmented event. So my new players are going to get, you know, this version of the event that is win 10 big jackpots. And you get, you know, a million coins overall against slot game here. But for my elder players, it's going to be like win a thousand big jackpots. And if you do that, you're going to get like 2 billion coins for like the top reward or something like that. And so it's like a very different challenge but different reward levels scaled more appropriately to like where those players are. Like is there a good way to go about doing that? or does it highly depend on you know the the players and how much they're maybe talking to each other because you know would they get upset if they see that they have a different version of that event or whatnot? Does that make sense?
0: I mean, if there are different levels of the progression, I think it's going to be all right. But the, I think the, to answer your question is like, we need to understand what kind of audience we're talking about because several audience, like different audiences perceive uh, competition in very different ways. Uh, and that's the very really the first step. For example, an audience might really badly react to seeing that they are number 5 million in a leaderboard. Like really, like that could be
1: disheartening. Really
0: yeah. <laughs> And another, they they could say, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend my life and money on this game to read the top, and maybe that's encouraging to them. So understanding the audience is really the first step for that and everything really any any game development topic. Um, but after that, after you understood the audience and the kind of competition they like, if you're still in doubt, then I believe that giving the fairest chance to win. Or they like the most celebration because the, the chance to win is the same, but the celebration of being first, um, like the wor- the best of the worst, <laughs> mm-hmm. rather than being okay among the very top ladder. It's yeah. still uh, it's probably better if you think about how the, the Hearthstone ladder works. Mm-hmm. It's it's really that they they subdivide legend players and not legend players. And uh and that's just a way to make you feel like you're not just one in a million, <laughs> unless unless you are, and then you become a legend player. But that's less like that's the one in uh, what is it ten thousand player? I don't know something like
1: that. Yeah, uh, I I feel like I posted about this at some point. I can't remember exactly which game. It might have been like Coin Master, but like you get in and they like introduce you to like the the wall after you've been grinding for a while, and then you're you know number 100 out of like 100 million or something and you're just like oh that's disheartening I'm not yeah. not going to chase after that anymore um, versus you know if they grouped you into you know the the bronze league or something like that and now hmm. I'm number you know 40 out of you know oh well I don't have that much further to go until I'm actually number one of this group
0: yeah I think that's always more effective because it it, it makes your your progress more noticeable
1: yeah have you ever heard of the the tower of want principle the tower of the tower of Want?
0: i'm not sure
1: okay so again this is ethan ethan levy um but uh joachim akran actually had him on to talk about it on the elite game developers podcast again too uh, but he gave a gdc talk which is um, definitely something i would recommend everyone to do um and the the general idea with the tower of want is to, um, really get to the baseline of like, why are players, um, doing something? Um, why do they want to progress? Why do they want to do this level? Um, let me see if I can explain it a little bit better. Um, so it's basically to help, game designers to kind of create these long-term goals because like with a free-to-play game, like ideally I want players to be playing, you know, 10 years from now. Um, and so you, you kind of break down, like if I did the tower of want for, let's say school, like, why do I want to do well in school? Or why do I want to study? Uh, so I can do well in school. Why do you want to do well in school? uh, so that I can get into a good college. Why do you want to get into a good college? So I can get a good job. Why do you, so I can get a house, I can get a family. So, so, you know, you, you end up outlining these like long-term goals of like, what is this person actually trying to do? And you can do that same thing, um, within, you know, your game development. So you have these like series of short and long-term goals that are kind of like escalating on each other. Um, but as you were kind of outlining, the concept of like tiers versus like the overall leaderboard with everyone on there um it just reminded me a lot of the tower of one so i'd be yeah. curious if you've ever used a similar framework
0: i'm not sure if i used it as such but it definitely like uh the understanding player motivation is one of the key things to start designing your game and that can go from uh understanding what they are what they're after, like in terms of like what what does a shooter player or an RPG shooter player that that likes fantasy, what what do they want first? For example, or what does a World of Warcraft player want in the in the very beginning of their their War, Warcraft career? They want adventure. They want a cape. I want personally a cape. In every single fantasy game, <laughs> I am into. I just want a cape, and then I'm good. But anyway, like. We use player traits, uh, no, 12 traits, sorry, um, yep. at Savage. And uh, it's been super useful. And it informs us on the one. Uh, like, well, it informs and checks uh, whether we are doing a, a good job on a daily basis. And we often go, go back and see, OK, the research says this. So it's probable that this mechanic really appeals to them. Or they would like to crack the system instead of being tutorialized. Um, And understanding play more integration is super, super key Mm -hmm. to to do that. And I think you should always design the the smallest goal possible, as well as shining a big light at intermediate goals and the long-term goal, so that you create a natural ladder of uh, things to do. Mm. But it could be even as small as kill the enemy in front of you, and then you get a celebration and you kill multiple enemies, and you get your, your weapon levels up, then your weapon levels up, and you can put more, you can, you can, it, it does more damage, or you can put more mods in it, and then you want to get the mods. But that kind of escalated <laughs> from just killing one guy. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely, I can see why it's a super useful tool. I'll definitely look into
1: it. Awesome. That's great. Um, yeah, I I think the the last little bit, I'd love to just talk a little bit about shooters and and how you because you know we we see all these top-end shooters like um call of duty mobile you know a little bit different than you know like some of the battle royales that are out there but you know on, on track to do over a billion of in revenue this year um obviously they've got a strong ip and a really strong team and stuff um but you know there's just so many of these shooters that are just doing amazing things um and it seems like a super competitive market and, and everything that's going on out there Um, for folks that, you know, have always had this passion for shooters, you know, they've been playing Halo or call of duty or whatnot, their entire lives. And they, you know, dream of bringing these great experiences to players. Like, you know, what sort of advice would you have to people that want to get into creating shooter games without uh, giving away the secret sauce at Savage, of course.
0: So, well, play as many of them as possible, no matter the, the platform, like console, PC, mobile. Of course, probably if you want to research controls and mobile, if you're developing on mobile is <laughs> probably the best choice, <laughs> but nothing prevents you from uh, exploring the, the genre completely 360. And also like these is uh, like something that I think should be dear to any game designer. If you're developing a shooter or something else, don't be fixated on the genre because I think inspiration or, or learning can come from uh, any other any other game. And actually, that maybe is a way to make it novel and to spice it up a little. But there is like the, the, the good thing about those famous shooters is that they're famous. So there is a lot of material that you can study on, uh, a lot of the constructions, a lot of uh, spreadsheets, even. I I saw uh, the construction of the Time to Kill of Destiny 2, which was this really huge spreadsheet of data. And I'm not even sure if it was released by the developers or by some, some crazy fan, but <laughs> it was super useful and interesting to know. And uh, so since they're famous, there's a lot of material and you can, you can do a lot of research on it, even looking at what, what's the, the update history that they have had it's super useful but again like if you don't find your niche along these huge top players that is probably not going to have a great time so finding also where like uh, like unexpected opportunities or unexploited opportunities that's also probably something for for product people to figure out and for designers to tap into
1: yeah there is a uh, a book by one of uh Procter and Gamble's old CEOs that was co-written with uh, a consultant that he used while he was CEO there uh, to really change the way they did innovation at PG. Um, and g uh, one of the stories that they shared in it was the development of the Big Bertha golf club. Um, and so this is back in the early nineties. Um, and in traditionally a lot of the golf club manufacturers would, um, you know, try to innovate on top of what was already there for the existing golfers. And so this company that ultimately created the Big Bertha said, well, we don't really want to compete with these other companies. So let's go look at the 90% of guys that don't play golf that are in that age group and every income bracket and stuff that should play golf, but don't understand like, why don't you play golf? Well, turns out, hitting the ball is hard and they don't want to look like an idiot in front of their friends. Um, and so ultimately they created the big Bertha, which is this golf club. It's got this like huge head and it is very difficult not to hit the ball pretty well when you're swinging the big Bertha. And so they ended up bringing all these guys into golf that had never played because, you know, now I don't look like a complete fool, but not only did they do that, But a lot of the existing golfers had that same problem. They just thought it was the fact of life of playing golf that, you know, they just weren't that good and they just had to like get better. They didn't think that there was anything out there, but because they focused on the players that didn't play golf, they were able to actually gain that insight. And they probably wouldn't have gotten that by just talking to the existing golfers, um, and, and I always thought that was a very fascinating story that I think can translate into games. Like if I look at Candy Crush,
0: Absolutely. probably
1: not, probably not going to get that many insights from players that play Candy Crush of like, what's wrong with it? Um, but what about talking to those women that by all accounts should be playing Candy Crush, but don't? I'm guessing may not be a fact but you know where did homescapes and gardenscapes come up with this meta idea probably it was from these players that were like why do i want to play these like what's the purpose why would i play this saga map of endless levels like there's no reason behind it and so homescapes gave them a reason but then even among those players you know lily's garden came in uh from tactile games and said well you just upgrading your, your this whole mansion isn't really that meaningful. Let's like add some rich story and narrative on top of this. And so it's like this progression of, of problem solving and stuff. Um, you know, do you think that there are similar opportunities within like the shooter genres to focus on, Hey, by all accounts, you should be playing call of duty mobile. Like what don't you like about it? Like, why, why did you play in churn? and see if there's some sort of problem in there that you can actually fix for a meaningful number of players to kind of expand the genre as a whole, if that makes sense.
0: Well, that's, that's absolutely like a valid product strategy. Um, I think like it depends if your audience is the same as these players or not. That's a starting point at least. So you can mm-hmm. understand like if you want to bring players from COD to your game and you're doing a PvP competitive shooter or a battle royale, Then it's definitely like something you could look into, or you can take a subgenre that's different. For example, shooter on rails, or looter shooter, or action (laughs) like RPG shooter, or something else. Yeah, like if you if you if you have a shooter on rails, like my my guess is that the audience is going to be quite different from fast paced, uh, like frantic uh, Call of Duty PvP shooter. It's, mm-hmm. it's still a shooter, so there is some sort of uh, appeal of that um, shooting, shooting a gun uh, to zombies uh, or um, other other things. Um, so definitely, like you can either find your niche or try to see if you can bring the audience from a competitor. But of course, like if you are a small studio and your competitor is huge, then it's like a big challenge. And there are probably other ways, but um but yeah like i don't think i don't think uh really, there's nothing you can't find out with user research it's going to be just only hard and takes probably a long amount of time <laughs> but if you if you if you keep researching you'll probably find something interesting enough but yeah. on the other hand it's going to be really hard to start thinking about a game without some sort of audience in mind. And also mm-hmm. developing a game without an audience in mind, like finding your audience to me it sounds always super risky. Yeah. Because what are your design choices like driven by? Like why are you designing this thing in a more hardcore or casual way? Like what's the on the point if you don't know what's the audience?
1: So you mentioned you kind of use 12 traits for that. Like how, how does that process work or how do they come in and actually help you figure out what this niche or this audience is.
0: So all well, the the tool is handled by by the founders, so I just get the research and uh, the way I, I use it is by reading it and <laughs> trying <laughs> to make a presentation out of it if it's if it's really complex and uh, it's like the the data they have or the um, the facts and insights are really well structured so it, it really helps you while designing something to just open uh, the research, look through it and see if it fits or not for the various player personas you have and uh, and so on.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, if you're listening, definitely check out 12 Traits. Joe's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I actually live in Madison, Wisconsin and, and uh, he graduated from the UW, Wisconsin. So we kind of got that uh, Midwest here in the US uh, founder uh, perspective. So um, love nice. those guys. I think they're doing amazing things and they work with pretty much all of the big gaming companies and stuff and everyone loves them so if you guys are looking for better ways to understand your audiences for new games i highly recommend them um one last question before our unofficial question um you mentioned like playing a lot of uh you know mobile games if you're designing for a mobile shooter or something it is really useful um do you think that there is value in playing let's say, shooter-adjacent or, you know, if I'm designing a puzzle game, like a puzzle-adjacent game or something like that, to just better understand things. So as an example, maybe I would say, like, a MOBA is sort of, like, shooter-adjacent in the same of, like, playing uh, League of Legends Wild Rift or Pokemon Unite or Brawl Stars or something to get a better understanding of, like, what controls could look like, comparing those to, say, like, Call of Duty mobile controls.
0: Absolutely. Like, there's... uh. There's, I don't think there's any downside to studying more, that's for <laughs> sure. But if, you, if you're if you strict on time, then I, I still think that's valuable, especially if you can find uh, key people that talked about those things. Uh, they, as I said, like when I was talking about the Phoenix Ranger experience, the concepts are very easily transferable most of the times. The more abstract they are, they are, of course, more transferable. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that's where the innovation comes from as well. I was really impressed when Genshin Impact came out uh, on the way they handled the cross-platform controls and make them feel good on on really both both platforms. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they 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 did a very solid uh, work on uh, on mobile. The controls are, are perfectly fine to me at least, and mm-hmm. on PC is just uh, like a perfect execution. I think on. Uh, on, on 3D, uh,
1: 3D control. Yeah, yeah 3D Genshin and, was was interesting for me. Like I, I loved it on mobile, and then I played it on PC, and it was like even better. And it was actually hard for me better, to go yeah. back to mobile. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, of course, the mobile as uh, like for such an like it's a pretty immersive game, I'd say. Uh, if you're if you into the genre and the, the fantasy atmosphere, so
1: yeah,
0: I, I see the appeal of the the PC, but I was really impressed by the fact that it was almost as playable on on mobile.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I was like, I'm, I'm playing Zelda here. It's, it's amazing.
0: <laughs> but especially the prototype stage, like exploration like that on adjacent uh, genres can be really fruitful. Yeah. Even if you modify something as small as the way you show damage.
1: I love it. I love it. Cool. Well, I, I know we're about out of time here, so I've got you know one last question because we are on the mastering retention podcast, and that is you know, uh, what's one tip, trick, or a lesson you've learned over the years to help increase uh, player retention? How do you keep players playing for longer?
0: Let's see. I mean, let me think about it a little. So I think about what worked for me. Well, of course, optimizing the, 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 the tutorial can be a huge factor. And by optimizing, I don't need just, you know, pushing the player through the tutorial because obviously if you have a tutorial of two boxes of text, everybody's going to push it through <laughs> or 99% of the people. That's going to be very useful. So optimizing the tutorial by that, I mean, also giving the player enough, just enough information for them to be hooked up and to be interested in, and that's highly dependent on the audience. So play player would like to figure things out, tell them there's something to be done with their with their weapon I don't know. you can upgrade here your weapon check out the mod system whatever and then there you go maybe they're hooked or players that need a little bit more hand holding then you can guide them and give them all the tools they need to deeply understanding their game I think for day one retention one of the biggest challenging is understanding if the players are dropping out because they don't like the game or because they don't understand the game at least that's uh, something that I would I would focus on for for day one. So, trying to like understand that a lot. Which, which one of those two is. is and uh, <laughs> a lot of user research before and after you are doing your tests. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of the before part because it can save so much time. Oh, yeah. And I think it's often un- underestimated.
1: That's great. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, if people do want to get in contact with you, is there a good way for them to do that?
0: Oh, well, they can reach me out on LinkedIn or. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I guess like LinkedIn
1: works really well or yeah. (laughs) And thanks for having
0: me. It was super cool.
1: Thanks so much. All right. We'll talk soon.